Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Can you believe that it's been two years since we first took on the challenge of creating the show? This is now our 90th episode, which is something we're extremely proud of. We've talked with scientists, community leaders, health advocates, and trailblazers. We've talked to policymakers, and we've talked to physicians. We've learned all about different types of health conditions. We learned about the things that help improve our health. And we also learned about things that we may take for granted in our lives, like our music and our pets when it comes to improving our health. So today we're looking back at some of my favorite guests over the past year, and we're gonna break it up like this. In the first part of the show, we're gonna talk about health. The first guest is from episode 54, and that was Dr. Jana Andronowski, who's a professor and researcher in human anatomy at Memorial University. Her area of research is into bones, and she shares a little bit about what happens to them when we age. Let's kick off the show by listening in my chat with her. Our bones change as we get older. We actually have more bones as a kid than we do as an adult. How does our skeleton shift throughout our lives? You bring up a very important point. So our skeleton is in many pieces of parts when we're born that eventually will fuse to those 206 bones that we uh, commonly think of when we think of the adult uh, human skeleton. And this growth and development process happens at really particular time points, right? So it's, it's pretty chronologically oriented. But once our bones are finished, sort of that growth and development process, we unfortunately begin this trajectory of degeneration. But despite this, her bone has a really remarkable ability to continue to repair itself. So for example, if we have micro damage or micro fractures that happen at the microscopic level, our bone will work to repair, we call this micro damage, before it turns into macro damage or fracture, right? And so again, if we apply say loads to our bones through exercise, this load bearing process is really good for keeping our bones healthy. So as I mentioned, after we're done the process of growth and development, we are on this trajectory of bone degeneration. And this doesn't necessarily mean that we're aging, but it just means that we're finished growing and we're seeing this process that is really different in, in all of us. And uh, this process of bone degeneration can be affected by, for example, previous injuries to a joint like your knees. Uh, it can be impacted by your physical activity. So say, for example, I'm running every day on pavement and I'm not wearing proper shoes it's going to be very hard on my lumbar spine, right? On my lower spine, because you're putting a lot of force. That's a weight-bearing uh, portion of your body. And so for most individuals, say 40 and, and, and above, we'll see some degenerative change to the vertebral body. So we call this uh, lipping. So you can see little bony outgrowth sort of surrounding the joint surface. We can also see degeneration of the discs. Again, this is very common in the lumbar spine, uh, even in, in, in younger individuals. But again, it, nobody ages along the exact same trajectory. We sort of try to cram it into this linear you know, explanation, but that's not always the case for everybody. And I think that's why we have to be really careful with things like age estimates from unknown skeletal material. If you have somebody you know, who might display these types of joint changes, but other indicators might say that they're younger, like 35 to 45, right? So it can be yeah. really variable. I will say that seeing sort of osteoarthritis to hip to knee, really common in our cadaveric populations as well as those joint replacements that I talked about earlier. And then in some cases, you do have the repetitive stress injuries. So you'll have a shoulder replacement and then you'll find out that this person's occupation was something that involved repetitive stress, like driving a truck for 40 years. Next up, I had an interview with my friend and trailblazer for human rights, Gemma Hickey. Now, Gemma is the first person in Canada to have a non-binary passport and has led the charge for change when it comes to antiquated views on gender in our society. Let's check it out. 
you know, when we talk about human rights, recently in the news, there's been a lot of tension, particularly given to the U.S., where rules around transgender participation in sports are being changed. Now, the new president has put rules in place to try and protect that, but on a state level, over 20 states are trying to restrict individuals who identify as transgender from competing in sports. Why is that an issue? Why are people concerned about this these days? Well, you know, I think that people are threatened by, by things they don't know or they don't understand, you know? And I think some people can grasp the concept of you know, you were born assigned male or female at birth, but then you don't actually feel male or female. Maybe you were born a boy and you feel like a girl and so you want to transition. And maybe you were born a girl and you want to be a boy, so you transition. I think people can understand um, certain aspects of that. I also think that the majority of people can understand why same-sex couples would want to get married because heterosexual couples can marry. And so they have a frame of reference. But when you talk about things like um, being non-binary, you know, people don't have a frame of reference. You know, you don't want to subscribe to either gender. Well, where does that place you? Mm-hmm. That's kind of beyond people's level of understanding because it's not what we're used to. And then we get threatened by that. People get threatened by that sort of thing that they don't really, they can't relate to, for example. I think sports is a, a gray area now. And I think it's really important that these types of discussions are happening because, you know, I know a lot of men, people who identify as men who were, who were born uh, male, who um, aren't as physically fit as a lot of uh, women that I know who were born female. And so I don't think we, we can look at gender as some um, measuring stick to exclude people from different types of sports. I think that for me, uh, I know that I did that walk across the island, uh, you know, it was pure estrogen powered. And after the walk, I transitioned. And, and honestly, I couldn't walk length of myself for a while until I got the hang of this hormone, you know? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, again, like, I think a lot of the uh, the mental uh, fortitude that it took to accomplish a 908-kilometer uh, walk across the island was all in my mind, my mental strength. Mm-hmm. That's what it is, usually. And I think we need to move away from, um, and I'm not sure if we want to do that entirely, you know, from categorizing um you know, abilities uh, based on gender. Like we need to move away from these gendered scripts. For me, when I was, when I applied for my birth certificate, you know, a new birth certificate to be non-binary, yes. there was no, there was only a female and male category on, on the application. And so I wrote in non-binary with a box next to it and checked that off. So literally carving out a space. Mm-hmm. So when I try to talk to people about what I'm doing, I try to reassure them and say, look, I'm not trying to take away from gender, how people identify. It's very important, you know? People's identity is very personal. Nobody should have to comment on that. In fact, I'm just trying to add something. Next up, we're joined by Kevin Peters, who's the COO of the Hickman Auto Group and founder of the Diabetes for a Day charity. He shared how his daughter's diagnosis of type one diabetes changed the way he looked at his health and since that transformation, how it's led to him changing the health of other business leaders and their organizations while raising money for type one diabetes research. It's an inspirational story of how much of an impact each of us can make in the health of our community. Back in uh, December 1st, 2016, my seven-year-old daughter was diagnosed with type one diabetes. And 
uh, always thought of myself as somewhat health conscious, not a um, person that was uh, crazy about it. But, you know, I, I learned a few things along the way and certainly with your direction too, back as uh, back in the day when you were a trainer uh, and applied that to my life, but really didn't have a deep understanding of health. And then when your child uh, is, is diagnosed with a chronic disease, suddenly it becomes very, very real, very, very quickly. It's very, very scary. And I've, I knew very little about diabetes. And uh, I, I still think that I, I know very little about it today, quite mm-hmm. truthfully. But I spend a lot of time uh, trying to learn as much as I can about it. But long story short, when Sophia was in the hospital for a little over a week, uh, trying to process what that was like for her, I couldn't figure out how to support her. I couldn't figure out how to deal with this personally as well. I mean, this is your, your baby that is going through a very tough and traumatic time. And so what I decided to do was give myself type one diabetes, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And you can't do that. But what I did do is, is say to the nurses and doctors, look, if every time you've got to poke her finger, I want you to poke my finger. Every time you give her a needle, I want you to give me a needle. Of course, no insulin in that needle, Mm -hmm. but it was just a way for me to try to get a sense of what she was going through at the same token, give her some support and let her know that we're in this together. And uh, that also applied to the fact that, you know, here's a seven-year-old, we're going into Christmas, is no longer allowed to eat sugar mm-hmm. and uh, very limited on the number of carbs she could do for the day. So I said, well, if you can't eat sugar, then I can't have sugar. And so I adapted that lifestyle uh, of a type one diabetic, which was 15 grams of carbs to two snacks a day and 30 grams of carbs for three meals a day. And that was it. There was no deviation. I didn't cheat. I didn't have so much as a chocolate and something really special happened. And within about two months, and you're talking about a guy here, you know, who's in his forties has had a lifetime of high blood pressure on medication, Uh, a little bit overweight, not too much, but within two months, Mike, I dropped 20 pounds. I no longer had high blood pressure and completely off medication energy levels went through the roof, uh, felt better. I was thinking clear. I had more energy and something just clicked and said, there's something to this lifestyle thing. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, my daughter's life depended on her lifestyle mm-hmm. and the light bulb went off for me. It was that, you know what? So does my life. My life depends on my lifestyle. And clearly within a very small window of time and paying attention to what I eat with carbs and drinking more water, going for walks, being cognizant of uh, my health had such an, a massive improvement in such a short period of time, something started to click here and said, wow, what if everybody had that opportunity to experience what I experienced? Certainly not under the stressful situation of having a child with type 1 diabetes, but just somehow had that awakening and that awareness that those little changes can have a drastic positive impact on your life. And that was really the big eye-opener for me. Today, we're looking back at some of our favorite clips from the last year as it's our second birthday. When we come back, we'll check out some of the great physical activity topics we visited in 2021 and so far in 2022. We'll be right back after the break. Now let's look at the role of physical activity in our health. We all know it's important and there's lots of ways we can get active. Take our first guest, Dan Meads, who after a rare neurological condition, which almost left him paralyzed, has taken his love of running to the highest level. Let's hear his advice on sticking with physical activity. 
you can keep yourself running at least four days a week, half an hour at a time is a perfect way to start. So 30 minutes, four days a week is a great starting point. You will find within the first couple of weeks, that half an hour doesn't feel as long and doesn't feel as hard. And that's your first metric for success is that it's not feeling as tough. From there, if you've got weight to lose and lots of us have, you can start to see that weight shed pretty quickly. Your relationship with food is gonna have a, a lot to do with this as well, right? And so thinking about how you fuel your body properly for these runs, but not give it the things that it doesn't need um, is also really important. And so giving your body good clean fuel that it's gonna use to burn on those runs, you're gonna find that you can start shedding some weight pretty quickly. Um, for me, that happened very, very fast. It, I, I started running at the same time I tried really intentionally to change my relationship with food and, and uh, that one made the other easier. And so dropping some weight because my diet was better made running easier. Running being easier meant I could run more often and run longer. And that meant I was really motivated to keep that healthy relationship with food. Um, and so if you're looking for success in one area or the other, doing them both simultaneously can have big benefits. Within a couple of weeks, you'll start to notice those weight changes if, you're, if you've got that, the, the nutrition piece dialed in. And you're going to start to see running get easier. Within a month of four days a week, your pace is going to quicken while your heart rate stays the same. That's the real metric for success. Your heart is going to be working way more efficiently. Your body's going to be working more efficiently. You can stay at that 180 minus your age heart rate, but you can run longer and you can run faster. And that'll continue. Here's the beautiful thing about running is that you can always continue to get better at it. So that first month, you'll start to see the gains. I found the three-month mark was huge for me. I started to feel like a superhero after three months. Like I could run every single day for an hour or 90 minutes and my body would recover well, right? I was doing you know, lots of foam rolling, lots of stretching. I have a physiotherapist that I see. I have a massage therapist that I see. You know, I spent and lots of time in a sauna, I use ice baths, I do all the things to keep myself feeling good. But if I, if I keep doing that recovery work, I could put in the miles literally every day and it got better and easier every day. Um, and so it's not that you're gonna wake up in the morning and every run is gonna feel light and easy. But if you think of you know, a week of time or two weeks of time as a general arc of how running feels, that first, you'll see a marker after that first month, some progress in month two, and then by the end of month three, you're a runner then. I mean, like it's time to start setting some distance goals. Like, yeah. like, is it the telly that you want to do? Is it a 5k that you want to do after three months? It's, it's time to pick and you don't need to line up at a race with a thousand other people or 2000 other people like the telly 10. You can set that goal for yourself and say, Hey, look for me, it's two laps around Kitty Vitty Lake. I want that eight kilometers and I don't want to have to walk at all. I want to keep my heart rate low. And at the end of it, I want to have a big smile. Now, Dan is such an inspirational story, and so is our next guest, who is Nathan Young. Nathan is a shining star in our sports community, having won gold at the World Youth Olympics and having represented our province at the Canada Games. He talks about his experience at the Canada Games and what we can expect here in St. John's as we get ready to host the next one. The Canada Games was our first national experience, and uh, it's unlike any other nationals you might go to because it's, it's Canada's version of the Olympic Games. It's a multi-sport event. You're not just competing against curlers or you're not just seeing curlers around the athlete village. You're seeing, you know, hockey players and snowboarders and all these, all these, well, that for us, because we went to the winter games, but mm -hmm. uh, 
um, you're, you know, it's, it's unlike any other national event you'll ever experience just because of the scale and, you know, thousands of volunteers and, you know, the, the staff and the mission teams and, and hundreds of athletes, thousands of athletes that go to these games and, uh, you know, everyone works so hard to get there. Mm-hmm. Everybody appreciates what everybody else had to do. There is a huge amount of respect for your other athletes. Um, you know, and, and I think everyone really, really understands, you know, it's, it's quite an honor to make it to this event and, you know, just soak it all in the energy level so high, the volunteers are, are so uh, excited and passionate and supportive of us. And lucky enough for us, a large part of our families were able to go there too. So to have them there is very special. And, uh, so it's just, you know, you just have to take it all in focus for your, for your event during your competition. But outside of that, take in the experience because it's unlike anything that you may have experienced before. Like I say, you're, you're there with thousands of, of athletes and volunteers and coaches and, and mission staff, and you get to meet these people and hopefully you carry on a connection with a lot of these people and, you know, friends and, and mentors and you learn how to win and lose. And as you know, it's, you don't just win and lose in sports, you win and lose in all areas of life. So learning how to deal with these experiences in, in through sport, you can take that and apply it to so many places uh, and experiences in our lives and uh, people you meet, the experiences you have, hopefully uh, no matter what you choose to do after you get to go to these games, you can take bits and pieces and apply it to whatever you choose to do. Next, we have BJ Randall, who's created an inclusive environment at the skate park with his Skate 101 program. He teaches young people who may be intimidated by the skate park how to enjoy a sport that is something you can do for a good chunk of your life. Take it from me, it's something I've done since I was a little kid, so I thought this story was great. He also has a program to encourage young women to participate, which is also breaking down barriers in the sport. Let's check it out. What are some of the challenges people face these days when they try to go to a skate park? Uh, lack thereof, a lot of them in our area. You know, there, there's not many skate parks to go to. And the ones that are around in, you know, on the West Coast, they're um, dilapidated and, and there's, you know, barely any features in them. So you get there and you roll around on the uneven dirt and stuff. And, and it's kind of, it's not rewarding, like being in St. John's and the areas in there that have the beautiful concrete skate park. So it's not so welcoming uh, as the nice concrete parks. Mm-hmm. You get over in those and you can cruise around and enjoy it but like i find the parks here and stuff are are pretty limited on what you can do you know right right and and, you know one of the things that uh we're going to be talking about today is the camps you've been running and the key to that is you're trying to create a more inclusive environment at the skate parks tell me all about these because this these are actually an amazing initiative you're doing yeah, so what I've been doing, uh, I've been doing ages uh, 6 to 14, essentially. Uh, we had a couple 16-year-olds. Uh, they were, the, the, you know, two 16-year-olds. But um, I'm teaching skate park etiquette, basic balance techniques, where you got to be in the skate park, trying to get the stigma away from it, you know, and, and get kids excited to go there, you know, because it, it, it's fun. And once they get there and they realize, you know, that it's so free and, don't have a coach and you don't have like, I, like what I teach the class, but I, I try to be their friend. You know, I, I'm not there coaching them. If they don't want to do something that we're doing, they can just step to the side. Like it's, it's not a big deal. Skateboarding is about what you want to do, you know? Mm-hmm. 
That's right. And one of the things I saw that was particularly interesting, one of my really good friends, Jody Cook, is a skateboarder. Uh, and she was uh, talking about the program you're doing for young women to bring them into the sport, because I think it's particularly intimidating for them to enter a skate park if it's full of a bunch of guys, right? Totally, totally. I mean, uh, girls, uh, it was unheard of uh, when I was skating in the late 90s and early 2000s in Pasadena and stuff. Like, we didn't hear us girl skateboarders. There was very few. Um, in my area, Morgan, uh, she uh, owns the bootleg beer place here in, uh, in Cornerbrook. And she, she was the only girl skateboarder that I knew growing up. And uh, she used to come out and skate with us all the time. And uh, nobody else did it. And she was known as the girl that skateboarded, you know, like it's, it's total different now. Like now you look around Pasadena, there's girls cruising around everywhere on longboards and shortboards and pegboards, skateboards, they're just skateboarders, they're everywhere. Well, that's the first half of our show. When we come back, we're going to look at a year of health in our province. We'll go back to our interview with Premier Andrew Fury and Minister of Health John Hagee as they shared the new government initiatives aimed at improving wellness launched in 2021. We'll also visit with Dr. Patrick Parfrey and Sister Elizabeth Davis from the Health Accord NL as they prepare for their final report. It was a big year for health in our province. Stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Well, it's no secret that Newfoundland and Labrador has some of the worst health status in Canada in a variety of different categories. It's the result of a complex recipe that includes our lifestyles, our geography, our recreational activities, our social determinants of health and our health literacy. Last spring, I chatted with Premier Andrew Fury to learn more about how the province stacks up to others and why we need to focus on health here at home. He highlighted the changes that they're implementing in last year's budget to help promote healthy living here in the province. We recognize as a government, of course, that health is a top priority for all Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, but we equally recognize that what we've been doing to date has not been effective. We continue to try the same avenues, using the same vehicles, and we continue to get poor results. Right now, we spend the most per capita uh, out of any province on healthcare, and we have the uh, worst health outcomes. We have the highest burden of chronic disease. We have the lowest life expectancy, and we need to change. And so this budget had that in mind when we uh, considered incentives uh, to uh, allow people to get more healthy, such as the physical activity tax credit uh, that will allow uh, families to avail of a $2,000 tax credit with respect to physical activity to, to help promote and incentivize people to become more healthy. Because we know, especially in our younger years, if we adapt a healthy lifestyle, then that pays dividends uh, long-term uh, as we age. So uh, that's, an, that's an incentive. There's also a bit of a, uh, a nudge factor with uh, a sugar tax in that uh, we want people to uh, consider when they're buying drinks, if they should uh, pick the high caloric non-nutritional drink or uh, perhaps a more healthy option. And so we're placing a tax on uh, sugary drinks. Uh, we know that the, some of those uh, calories are, are not really nutritional and those drinks are quite high in caloric intake and, and consequently contribute to things like diabetes and obesity, all things that we're trying to change in order to become a more healthy province. And really, the bricks and mortar investment in hospitals don't really change the significant health outcomes more than, than these practical individual choices, social determinants of health, if you will. And if we can help people make those uh, right choices, then I think we're doing our job as government. Next, I spoke with Minister of Health, Dr. John Hagee, 
for some of the specific challenges that we're facing here in the province with respect to our demographics, including aging populations and a still high smoking status. He also discussed the need for balancing prevention and for treatment. Well, I think the most obvious is that we are an aging population. We have more old folk per capita, as it were, than, than most jurisdictions, and the rest of us are getting older as well. So that brings with it the challenges of aging. We have significant chronic diseases in the province, and we're not a very healthy province. We have significant levels of obesity. We have significant levels of alcohol use and smoking. Uh, and those all combine really to become a perfect storm. As you get a bit older, um, <clears throat> you don't age well under those circumstances, and that drives the costs we just talked about too. Uh, the challenge we've got is prevention is really good way to spend your dollars. But when your dollars are tight, you've still got to spend on treatment as well. So mm -hmm. it, it really is a, a, a bit of a, a Solomon's quiz sometimes trying to figure out which way to go. To evaluate the effectiveness of healthcare here in the province and the causes behind our poor health status, the Health Accord NL was created. It's brought together experts in the field of health and health policy and our communities to forge a new path forward for health here at home. I was joined by Dr. Patrick Purfrey and Sister Elizabeth Davis as they shared some of the insights that their team gained during their community consultations. There are several crises all occurring at the same time. Uh, there's a health crisis in that our life expectancy has gotten worse over the last 20 years. The difference between us and Ontario in 1981 was one year. Now it's 2.6 years. Uh, we've got that we've got the highest provincial rate of cancer, heart disease, and stroke, and we have the highest prevalence of chronic diseases in seniors in the country. So that's the health piece, and, and on top of that, there's been a very substantial demographic change. Uh, the population of the province has dropped by about 8%, and that has not been uh, uniform. It's occurred in rural areas in particular. There's a 42% drop in the Northern Peninsula. You know, south, the South Coast, about a 40% drop. Durham Peninsula, the same thing. And the drop has occurred in young people, people below the age of 34, in children and in, in, uh, in young adults, because of out-migration associated with the Cod Moratorium. So that demographic change has been extremely substantial. On top of that, we have a uh, climate change uh, crisis that, uh, that does interfere with health, particularly in Labrador, where people have difficulty uh, with more fog and more bad weather than they've had previously. So it affects their capacity to get, get emergency therapy. And then there's a sustainability crisis within the health system, as you probably know about now. We've got the deficit of, uh, of family practitioners. We've got chaos in rural areas and primary care. Um, we've got a lack of nurses and specialists in the hospitals. Um, so these five crises have come together at the same time, demanding that a plan should take place or should be produced. And because we need a, a holistic and integrated solution, it's going to take time to put the plan into place and it's going to take time for it to, to, to function. So that's why we've called it a 10-year transformation, even though the plan that we will come up with will probably be a five-year plan. I suspect they thought we would look more at health care, not just at health. But as we began to explore where we were going here, we realized the ultimate issue is health. How do we strengthen the health of the province? And we realized very early on the only way we could do that 
is by engaging with people that we did not have, it made no sense for us to speak on behalf of the people of the province. So the accord piece of this is a part that says we engage with government, certainly. We engage with many stakeholder groups who have all kinds of interests in health and healthcare. But ultimately we have to talk to the people of the province. It's their health, their province, their say, one of the taglines we use. And it's for this province of Newfoundland and Labrador. So when we began the work, uh, the two of us were appointed by the premier and the minister. And then we in turn worked with, the, with both of them to name a task force that has very broad representation from the community, from the medical school, from the unions, from each party. So a broad-based group. Although our province is currently facing health challenges, there are many initiatives underway to turn the proverbial tide on our health. Even you turning into this show are taking health literacy into your own hands, so well done. When we come back, we're gonna finish up the show with some of our most inspirational guests from last year, including the one and only Alan Doyle, performance coach John Francois Thibault, and procrastination expert Tim Pitchell. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. Let's hear from some of my favorite episodes on mental health from last year. Our first clip is from the one and only Alan Doyle, talking about music and how it's not only good for dancing, but it's also good for our health. What do you think it does for the audience when they're there, besides getting sore calves the next day, jumping around all night? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think the most practical thing is, is it's, you know, from, from an audience perspective, at least I'd like to think so anyway, is that it's, a, it's an escape, right? And it's a and it's a shared experience that's an escape. So yeah. it's like you're not escaping by yourself, you're getting lost together as the rodeo would say. And like, so you have this sort of shared uh, experience that's if you, if you know, the guy on stage doesn't write, yeah. will make you laugh and make you cry and make you sing along and, and make you feel all the feels as the, you know, as they say these days. And I think that in a time when, you know, entertainment has been changing so quickly in the last three to three decades, what have you, and the choices that people have, you know, to entertain themselves at home or whatever. Uh, it's still amazing to me that that people still love this art form. Mm. They love to come and face this way while some other guy faces this way and sings to them. Yeah, that's that. You know, I don't know how many thousands of years old that is, yeah. but it's still. Um, very, very meaningful to people. And I think the pandemic showed us how badly people missed it, you know? I mean, even, I think even more than theater or, 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 or musicals or, or whatever, like that, or dance, you know, that singing together as yeah. a performative art, yeah. I think is, is very, very human and, uh, and valued. Well, that's a huge thing. People, I mean, even the travel aspect of it, people travel to go to concerts. That's like a huge part of travel. Yeah, musical tourism, I call it, right. yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, that's getting back, which is great for everybody's health. And, you know, the term music as medicine has been popping up with everybody I talk to. You know, yeah. is there a link between music, mental health, or even physical health in your view? Well, I, Matt Byrne, who's one of my favorite singers, I heard Matt on the radio, I don't know, two or three years ago now. And Matt said something that kind of blew my mind, and because I, I never actually heard it put in words before, and and again, this is from my side of the microphone, and is that he said singing is physically rewarding, right? And I never it never occurred to me that that was true until he said it, and and 
he went on to explain that it was, you know, because singing, of course, just like any other thing, you use muscles in parts of your body that you don't use doing that nails hardly. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so there's, there's, for those of us who do that and flex those muscles as much as we like to do, mm -hmm. you really miss it when you don't get to do it. Right, and right. it's a completely different thing to be, you know, in your basement or whatever, or, uh, you know, doing virtual things in front of a, you know, your own, your own phone yeah. or whatever. Um, it's a completely different thing than standing in front of a group of people with all those expectations and all that kind of, you know, interaction that there's, you know, you, you, your body does things that you, you don't do any other time. Right. And you get a rush of, you know, whatever endorphins or whatever that, that comes with it. But just um, purely as a physical thing, it's rewarding to do. You're right. And the, and I, I would have never thought about that, to be honest with you, until I heard him say it. And then, of course, you know, for your own mental health or for my own mental health, of course, it's, it's not hard to figure out. It's just, it's what I love to do more than anything else. Right. You know, so when you get to do it, you like it. And when you don't get to do it, it hurts. Yeah, right. So, right. and, and, and this, you don't need to think any more about it than that. It's always so much fun chatting with Alan Doyle. And the same goes for our next guest, who's a friend of mine for over two decades. Now we came up through the ranks of athletic performance training, but have both adopted a much more inclusive approach to overall wellness. Jean-Francois Thibault is a Quebec-based performance coach who shares some important information that we can all learn from. Let's check it out. I know that, for example, when I'm stressed, I don't think that's straight, but you also mentioned emotional health and emotional intelligence, or EQ. Can you explain exactly what that is for people? Emotional in intelligence has many different categories. And what I would like to talk about is emotional agility. So mm -hmm. our ability to recognize what is the emotion that we're living in this very moment? Mm. Because we haven't been trained for that. My generation, your generation, let alone older people haven't been trained to recognize what it is that I'm really feeling right now and how can I acknowledge it and how can I gather the information, the wisdom that this emotion is trying to communicate to me so I can actually act in alignment with what I need. Mm -hmm. So this emotional agility, first of all, is to start being aware of how am I feeling and to name it. Name it. Is it frustration? Is it uh, the, the irritability? Is it sadness? Is it overwhelm? Like what, what it is? And emotions are subjective. If I show you the wheel of emotion with all the positive and negative emotion, and I ask you to pinpoint what are you feeling right now? Well, you're going to take a moment to identify like, am I feeling good? Am I feeling lower in energy? Am I feeling uh, more angry? And then what are the specific emotions that are connected to those broader categories? So being able to name the emotion has been shown that it actually reduced the intensity of the emotion by 50%, mm -hmm. just naming it, just saying like, I'm feeling frustration right now. Well, you're already 50% less frustrated if you're naming it. Mm -hmm. And if you're just present to the emotion. If somebody is able to name this and they are cognizant of this, how do you see that translate into somebody's daily life, in particular, somebody in a work environment? Well, it changes the game because if I'm able to be accountable for my emotion, I'm able to take the necessary action based on what this emotion had to communicate to me. So let's say I'm frustrated because someone overstepped my boundaries 
or I overstep my own boundaries. I can actually see, oh, I didn't put boundaries and like someone just overstepped my own boundaries. So what, what I need to do is next time I need to put some boundaries so uh, people know what they are because I haven't put any or I'm, I didn't make them clear. Well, now I learned something about myself and I can take a, a proper action to mediate that. So it doesn't happen again with, let's say that specific person or with my team or with my boss. <laughs> well, if you're naming it too, you could say, oh, in this circumstance, I do get frustrated or I do get anxious or I do get angry. And then you're able to recognize the situation and say, hey, wait, I, it reminds me of football. Somebody sets up a formation. They're about to score a touchdown on you. They score, but now you can shift your defense for once. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Because we're responsible for how we are reacting, but we're not responsible for what is triggering us. Like we got many triggers inside of us, but how we're reacting to the trigger, this is what we're responsible for. I think our episode in January on procrastination with Dr. Tim Pitchell received the most feedback of any episode this year. And if you haven't heard in its entirety, I recommend you checking it out online. It was blocked full of great info. He's an author, speaker, and professor, an all-around fantastic human being. He's going to finish our show with some encouraging words around making lasting change in our health. I, I mentioned in passing my uh, Dutch friend, uh, the philosopher Utrecht, uh, who defined procrastination as culpably unwarranted delay. He also wrote a wonderful paper uh, a while back. Uh, actually, it was a chapter in a book, a great book, if, if you're... Uh, listeners are interested, it's called The Thief of Time, Philosophical Essays on Procrastination. So if you're a philosophical bend, you might enjoy that book. But in any case, what Joel and his co-author Joe Heath argued is that we need extended will. And, and I, I said to Joel, what does that mean? He said, well, if I asked you what's three times three, you'd probably immediately say nine. If I asked you what's 486 times 237, you might say, I can't do that in my head. Mm -hmm. But if I gave you a piece of paper and a pencil or a calculator, you could. That's extended cognition. You're extending your ability to think by using tools. Wow. So why is it we try to treat willpower as if we can't extend it by having environmental affordances? Wow. And your example is a perfect example of that. You know, I would never let a friend down if I said, okay, I'll meet you at the gym, mm -hmm. right? Because I, I know that about myself, but I could easily say to myself, that's 4.30, I've had a lousy day, I didn't sleep well last night, I'm not going to exercise today. Mm -hmm. But instead, you tie yourself to this friend and you, yeah. and you have that commitment. And what we're doing in a strange sort of way is leveraging our self-control. We know things about ourselves. In fact, some people can say, well, if I don't exercise, I'm not having that dinner on Friday night. Yeah. And I love having dinner Friday night. And we know perversely, we could actually do that, withhold huh. that. Now, some yeah. of you are thinking, I could never do that. Okay, don't use that strategy. Use the one Mike said instead, which is, you know, find social supports because you become more accountable mm -hmm. because you en you'll enjoy it more, first of all, right? You're going to be with someone that you have fun with yeah. and, and you're going to feed off each other. I mean, back in, in the late 1800s, some of the early social psychologists showed that people rode bikes more quickly when they were competing against others, right? <laughs> There's a social facilitation effect. So this is known as extended will. And you can do that in so many ways. One last example is this. Uh, Joe and Joel argue that you need to make ladders to make the things that are easiest to do harder, like the stuff that you just always go to, and shoots to make the things that you find difficult easier. So for example, your example about going for a run in, or exercising in the morning, not only do you harness that to your partner, but you put your exercise clothes right 
next to your bed. Yeah. So it's, there's no hassle. Like you're not going looking for them. There's no yeah. excuses. They're right there and off you go. So, and, and at the same time, you make the other things that are like your phone, it's off. So you'd have to wait for it to boot. It's yeah. somewhere else in the house, right? Yeah. The things. Yeah. And, and I can't say enough about that, right? Yeah. Like in this world, we have to shut off our devices or they're just going to own us. Thank you to all of my guests who joined us so far on our journey. Two years sure does fly by quickly. And of course, thanks to you, our listeners who tune in each week or download an episode for your walk and drive. It means a lot to have your support and we'll continue to bring you new and interesting topics each week so that we can all learn together. Also, don't forget to find us on social media for tips, quizzes and info about our episodes on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Next week, in light of the new national dental care programming, we'll learn about why taking care of our mouth and our teeth is so important. You may also be surprised to find out how Newfoundland and Labrador may already be a step ahead when it comes to programs like those announced by Ottawa. Until then, I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM.